Hello, everybody. Welcome to First Impressions, uh, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters. I believe this is episode 17, so you probably know that by now. We're both back. I'm Kristen, and here's Maggie. Hi. So, Kristen, just let me say before we get going that um, to everyone, in case they're wondering why I sound like a chipmunk or why I sound really congested, it's because I am. I've been very sick with a cold the past um, five days now, and it's awful. And I'm starting to feel human again today. But in case you're wondering why Maggie sounds weird, that's why. And in case you're wondering if it's just your imagination or if Maggie sounds awesome today, it's because she has a new piece of equipment, the Snowball Microphone. Yes, I finally, they can be feel free to send us money for this free advertisement. <laughs> um, I finally decided, I guess this podcast thing was going to take and stick around. <laughs> so it was finally worth investing $30 in, a, <laughs> in an adequate uh, podcasting microphone. So we've had our year. I gave us a year. We survived. That's right. So I have a brand new spanking adorable microphone. Maybe I'll post a little picture of it because it, like oh, it looks like a little Death Star on a stand. <laughs> and it's you should. Very it's very and it's and called the Snowball Ice. Yeah, I think these are both appropriate that. names because where Kristen is in Boise, it's like negative fifty degrees. Oh my god, it's been so cold. But I'm trying to keep warm. I was curled up with a blanket and some cocoa and persuasion. Oh, oh my god, you are and so adorable. You're like a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So persuasion. If you, I will, I will start this podcast with a little bit of a caveat. If you love persuasion, if it is your favorite novel of all time, if you think it's the pinnacle of all romantic books, and you like this podcast, I'm concerned that by the end of this episode, one of those two things may not be true anymore because I have some things to, I have some strong opinions about persuasion, which you may not appreciate hearing. <laughs> Um, I well, have lucky for you if persuasion is your favorite because I loved it. So I am here for you to carry the persuasion is great banner. Yeah. Listener, and after that dire, love this book. after that dire warning, I, I will say that my opinion of persuasion did go through a bit of a revolution after this last reading. And I love it a lot more than I did. So I'm not going to be too hard on it, but you may have uh, strong feelings about me. If you want to send your deep anger <laughs> to us, first impressions podcast at gmail.com, feel free to take it out on me. I'm well aware that I might deserve it. <laughs> I'm waiting we'll meet in the middle. So um, the thing about me and persuasion is that persuasion seems very different to me. It almost seems like it was written by a different author in certain respects. I mean, obviously, it's still brilliant and it ha still has that Austin signature of deep understanding of human nature. However, her narrative voice has changed in persuasion for me. To me, she seems a lot less good humored in the way she looks at the world and a lot more uh, cruel, bitter. Um, and before we talk any more about it, I'll just give you some background on when Persuasion was written. When Austin actually was falling ill, um, there are a lot of um, conflicting opinions about how she died, what she died from. But what's indisputable is that at the beginning of 1816, when this book was being written, she fell very ill. And we also know that her marriageable age was basically over at this point. 
And she was probably feeling frustrated with life. Um, Her brothers had not necessarily supported her after her father's death, her and her sister and her mother, to the extent that they maybe could. But about that, probably to a certain extent, too. And I think that those two things, and especially her illness, and illness does make you crabby, and that's true of everybody, are reflected in... I don't know what you're talking about. I'm delightful when I'm sick. (laughs) They're reflected in the narrative Nope, nope, nope. Reflected in, reflected in the the authorial voice, and it's almost, it's just, um, it it disorients me a little bit, and uh, and I, but in in a way, it's fascinating. It shows Austin's humanness as well. Um, but anyway, so that was going on. Austin wrote it. She was very ill when she finished it in July of eighteen sixteen. She died in eighteen eighteen um, from her illness. And then posthumously, Persuasion was published and it was actually bundled with uh, Northanger Abbey. And it's interesting because both of the books take a look at Bath, the city of Bath. Northanger Abbey, we know, was written when Jane was young, up and coming, eligible, excited about life. And it's reflected in Catherine Moreland's, you know, romantic experiences with Bath, Bath. But when we take a look at Persuasion's view of Both, it's extremely negative. And Elliot, the main character, the, the narrator in general, those are two just completely different, completely different. And it must have been jarring to read those books one after the other because I'm not saying that um, you know Persuasion is bad. It is still brilliant. I, it's still one of my favorite novels of of all time. But when we take a look at Austen and step back um, from it, it, there are some differences. And I have I have lots of things I want to talk about that proof and, you know, examples. But before I go any further, um, we have a plot summary. If you're not familiar with the novel or if it's been a long time since you've read it and Maggie will take you through it. Yep. So this is actually just a plot summary from Wikipedia because I'm really bad at writing short summaries. I always want to include lots of detail. Um, But just in case you're not familiar with Persuasion, I don't think it's one of her most widely read novels. Um, Here is a very um, short summary of the main points. The story concerns Anne Elliot, a young English woman of 27 years whose family is moving to lower expenses and to get out of debt at the same time as the Napoleonic Wars come to an end, putting sailors on shore. The Elliots rent their home to an admiral and his wife. The wife's brother, Navy Captain Frederick Wentworth, had been engaged to Anne years earlier, and but now they meet again, single and unattached, after no contact in more than seven years. The reason for the end of their engagement was Anne was persuaded by friends and family that he was not an appropriate match. The seven-year absence and reconnection sets the scene for many humorous encounters as well as a second well-considered chance at love and marriage for Anne Elliot in her second bloom. So that kind of gives you the idea. Basically, Anne, when she was young, fell in love with a sailor named Frederick Wentworth, who was of no real consequence or fortune, and she was talked out of the engagement by her best friend, Lady Russell, and her family. Uh, years later, seven years later, she's still not married. There's been no more other prospects. Uh, a point is made that she's kind of lost her looks. Um, but she meets up again with Captain Wentworth, who has made his fortune in the Navy by lots of French frigate captures, and <laughs> if you will, any excuse to use the word booty. Um, so now <laughs> rich, and they're thrown back into each other's path. And the book concerns, does he still love her? Will they be able to come back together? It's very clear that she has always loved him. She has not stopped loving him. She never wanted to not marry him. She just allowed herself to be persuaded. 
Um, and then the book follows probably, what is it, a course of a year about Kristen? Uh, yeah, that sounds right. Um, through her family's relocation to Both um, and some various adventures with other side characters. And spoiler alert, the two of them are able to come back together to confess that they have always and still love each other. And I would say it has a very happy ending. Yay. So oh, stop. <laughs> You're in the middle of the tundra. It's hard for you to get happy about anything. <laughs> well, look, uh, listeners, um, this book is genius. It's Austin's genius that she is once into the human psyche and show us things about it. However, um, this is to me, uh, Austin's other novels as our point has been all along. They're not just romances. They're not even primarily romances. Persuasion is to me romance. It exists to talk about development ending. It is, it is a romance. That's not what I come to the table for, for Austin. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe I feel a little threatened when I read this, that, you know, it is really showing her as a romance writer, but that's, that's not bad. And especially after this last reading, I really do embrace that. I, told myself I didn't find it romantic. This time around when I read it, I realized that it is. It is romantic, um, deeply so. However, this book is agony for me to read. It's the book I've read the least because Austin is so brilliant at showing us Anne Elliot's pain that I feel right there with her. I'm shredded up all throughout the story um, because of her longing for Frederick Wentworth and the knowledge that she could have been with him, but she was persuaded to give him up. The mm-hmm. psychological agony that she goes through when she sees him come back into the neighborhood, rich, successful, handsome, everything she wants, and of course, she thinks we'll never have again. The agony is extreme. And this makes me, I won't say hate, a really dislike Frederick Wentworth. I'm happy for Anne at the end that she got what she wanted. And I understand she loved him deeply and I'm right there with her. However, as an impartial observer of this romance, I can't get behind it. That guy is a dick. I hate Wentworth. Wow. He is a terrible person. I mean, as an Austin hero, he displays a lot of qualities that all the other Austin heroes do not have. He has so much pride and um, he doesn't, maybe he doesn't understand it about himself, but he can't subsume it or subjugate it to his love for Anne, just like Darcy did. He set aside his pride. He loved Elizabeth that much, but Frederick Wentworth can't do that. He has too much pride. And um, he has a lot of other characteristics to that. I think makes him behave very unfairly and cruelly all throughout the novel. Wow. See, I, I actually really disagree. Um, I, one of the reasons why I really loved this book is also, I mean, what you, you're talking about the change of tone in the narration to me, it just felt so, it felt like an older, more mature person was writing it. It felt like a much more mature novel. And there's a lot of regret that's taught. That's kind of under the surface here. Obviously. I mean, Anne feels like she made a horrible mistake and has missed out. And one of the reasons why I actually love Wentworth is he feels like, a, again, we talk about this all the time, Austin writes real people. She writes real people. And the things that he does in the novel that I'm sure that you view as being like cruel and being a dick, like he admits to at the end, he completely cops to. He's also willing to see the consequences of that. But also she broke his heart eight years no. ago. She re- no, reached he in his chest, was wrong. He re- was ripped wrong. his heart out. 
And Come he on. comes back. So, of course, he's going to be like, you know what? I'm hot shit. But I don't even think what Let's he did. Let's talk about that. We'll talk about it, right? But I, I really liked him. I really, really liked him. I thought he felt like a real Let's person. Let's talk about I his so-called him. broken heart. Because when he went to Anne and he okay. proposed to her, he had nothing to offer. He had no wealth. It says explicitly that he had been successful, but spending freely what had come freely, he didn't have any money. And he all he could say was, look, I'm sure I'll be rich. And Anne, for Anne, the loving, sweet Anne, who got engaged to him because she loved him, well, we all know what happened to Francis Ward from Mansfield Park when she married a lieutenant of the Marines and then was freaking poor and miserable. So Anne's older relative, um, Lady Russell, who sees this about to happen, try tries to tell Anne, look, this is you this is this is not a good idea. You need to hold back. You need to wait until there's enough money to get married to him. And this is what Anne says to him. And Anne says, this is for your benefit. I would be a financial drag on you. She doesn't say, I don't love you. She doesn't say, I won't have you. She just says, this is not the time I can marry you. Why don't you go put your money where your mouth is and go make some money and then come back like a, like a guy with honor who can afford to marry a rich woman. And that is not, it is a totally defensible position. And Anne knows that. And she thinks that all throughout the novel. When he is unfair to her time and time again, she can rely on the fact that she did listen to Lady Russell. That was her sense of duty, which every woman was supposed to have. Lady Russell was in a parental role. And so she knows she did nothing wrong. I don't truck with this idea. Oh, you broke my heart. That was just his immaturity, his lack of um, empathy, his going to her when he didn't have a you know a home to offer her, I don't see how he, he is not justified. No matter what, how he wants to say, oh my pride was hurt. Well, if your pride was hurt, you're a jerk. Like I'm sorry, he's a jerk. So here's why I think this is why the book works and is interesting because nobody is really wrong. He's wrong. She's right. She's right to say no been right to marry him because she loved him. That's true. She feels that her heart was broken. He feels that his heart was broken. And that's how it works in real life. I mean, you can tell, like, we can be, like, we have friends who get divorced. We have friends whose relationships don't work. The side of your friend is the one that you're like, oh, that guy was a dick or she's like, whatever. You know, you, every person has a side. Both of the people in this relationship felt like they had been wronged. Both of them had their heart broken. Both of them were right and both of them were wrong. Whatever happened, you couldn't say that was a right or wrong choice. It was just a choice. And you're always going to have regret or think of the road not taken. But that's why the book works. And that's why you love Anne, because you can be like, okay, she allowed herself to be persuaded. You should have done it for love. But we all know in the real world that, you know, you can't, love doesn't always win. And sometimes you can't just marry for love. So maybe she was right. But then again, they loved each other seven years later. And after all of this, it's still there. And there wouldn't be a plot. You know, and I think that's one of the frustrating things is that sometimes when I read this book, I think, oh, Anne, why didn't you just get married to him? And then I get mad at myself for being, you know, coming over to his side for a second. So I do see what you're saying. I, I'm frustrated that she lost seven years or eight years or whatever of her life. That's what hurts me and frustrates me the most, especially when she sees what her life could have been, when she meets his friends and sees his um, happy life and 
she has had to spend all this time with these horrible people, this horrible family. She doesn't have a single confidant. She doesn't have that female friend that all of our other Austin heroines have. You know, Emma has Mrs. Weston and Sense and Sensibility, the two sisters, and Elizabeth has Jane. Female friendship is one of the, the touchstones of Austin novels. And one of the reasons this book is so full of despair is that Anne has nobody, nobody but you, the reader, feeling for her. And I just want to reach out and do something for her. It's, I, I love her so much. I'm, I'm agonized. Um, I want her I to have... Reading through it, I sort of saw Anne as a, a more mature author's version of Fanny. Yes. Mansfield Park. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, she has a lot of um, famil- you know, uh, parallels with Fanny because she's often disregarded. She has to play the piano while everybody else dances. You know, even her own family is like, oh, it's only Anne. She can give way to everybody else's opinions. And um, being discarded, um, forgotten, not a center of attention. When Wentworth comes into her life, he is the center of attention. Everybody loves him, wants to talk to him. And she's nothing. I mean, she's just sitting by feeling despair. I kind Um, of also see her as... I'm just like comparing her to all the other heroines, sorry. But I also kind of see her as an Eleanor who was unrecognized as being as awesome as Eleanor because she is, yeah. <laughs> she is the most um, common sense. She does have good ideas. She's awesome, but nobody pays attention to her or acknowledges it. So she's basically like Eleanor if nobody noticed Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is also really frustrating to see her – you know, Maybe that's a better comparison than um, than Fanny Price. I think they're both they're both reasonable, and you know this is a serious uh, novel. It is is more somber in tone. It has sort of this autumnal feel to it, and that's explicitly acknowledged. You know, when they go they go on this one walk at one point, and it's autumn, and she's thinking to herself all of these sweet quotations that oh, from yeah. poetry that she loves. And, Autumn never um, fails to stir the poet's pen to, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she has no one to share them with. Leaves, those dead leaves on the brick wall. <laughs> <laughs> it is not everyone who has your passion for dead leaves. Um, yes. <laughs> there's a um, there's an author that wrote for Slate.com. If you read Slate.com magazine, I, I really um, encourage you to read this article um, because it sort of backs me up. That's why I'm encouraging to read you you to read it, because it backs me up a little bit. And when I read it, I was like, yes, thank you. We'll post it on the Facebook page. It's by a woman named Adele Waldman, who is um an Austin, you know, literate person. And she wrote this article, Jane Austen Books, Ranked and Reconsidered from Emma to Persuasion. And what she says is it lacks not only the comic sparkle of Austen's other novels, which there is comedy there, but it does lack a sparkle for sure. It also lacks, relatively speaking, the fineness of observation and the psychological nuance that is enough to make any book, even the fairy tale like love story of a teenage girl and a wealthy man, a great one. It is an unsubtle reader. And this is something I've quoted mm. on the, the podcast before, but I didn't know it was Adele Waldman. And now, now I'm attributing it right. It is an unsubtle reader who conflates a book's ostensible subject, i.e. something sad and autumnal, with its depth. Proof of artistry is rarely located in plot summaries. 
And um, mm. I'm not saying that there's no artistry here. Actually, the artistry comes in in a different form. It's not um, comic sparkle and observing silly people that we meet in the world. What it is, is a novel about the power of tiny gestures and how much okay. weight they can carry. And that yeah, to me sure. is the genius, the, the love that c- can come through in the littlest of gestures, especially to sensitive people when they're really watching and the massive emotional impact that something as simple as, you know, a, a hand up into a carriage can have. And I came to understand through this reading that there is a common theme with Austin's other novels that I've, I've sort of latched onto. And for me, this novel is, um, just like all the others, a novel about the stories we tell ourselves. Even um, and Emma is a perfect example. We see the world through Emma's eyes because she's telling herself what's going on. In the same way, um, when Wentworth gets introduced to us, for example, the author says, and it's actually a story in his head that we don't know that yet. The author says he doesn't care about Anne Elliot besides a little curiosity. He's just going um, to catch a pretty girl and he doesn't even care. He doesn't, he, if she sees him do whatever, he doesn't care. Well, we know by the end of the novel that that's not true, that he's always loved her. But instead... I also thought that wasn't true when I was reading it. I don't know. I thought it was true the first time uh, I read it. Yeah, and I mean, that's uh, to me that read as I'm going to convince myself. This yeah, is- but it's a story he tells himself, and it's a yeah. narrative he constructs for Anne. I mean, she's living yeah. that story too, and Anne herself is trying to to figure out what the story is by watching his behavior, and she doesn't want to get too invested. So the story she's telling herself, she sees these little gestures, but then she tries to talk herself out of what she sees. No, you know, I'm putting too much. Um, weight on this. It's just a proof of his friendship, not a proof of his love. She takes it and she li- has, she's happy about it, but she's not until the end is she really reading the love into it, even though the love is there. And you as a reader know, oh, you know, the way it's described. Mm-hmm. Um, and think little things like the emotional impact of Wentworth taking the little kid, Walter, off of Anne when he's annoying her and Anne's trying to help the other child or even if he comes and stands by her, even if it's awkward. Like, yeah. Oh my God. It, you know what though? That's, well, I have two points about that. Um, the first is, do you remember when you were in high school and stuff like, that's how it yes. was? Yes. Like, oh my God. Like he touched, he touched my yes. shoulder. Oh my God. Like that's how it, it is. Um, yeah. And also that's all they could do to show they liked someone. Um, you can't, it's not like now where like I can, I walked up to Bay and I was like, so this is a date, right? Like this is going well. You can't do that. Yeah. You can't walk up to her and be like, you know, I still like you, right? No. <laughs> it, you only- <laughs> the part I remember the most, and this is not, we were going to focus on part one for this section. This is, I think in part two, where they're at the concert in Bop. And after ta- they have a conversation where they're sitting next to each other and she and Cap went with have a conversation. And at the end of the night, she's like, oh, my God, he still loves me. I know it. He still loves me. I could tell by the way he talked yeah. to me and the way he was looking at me. And I remember in my head, I was just like, what, girl? <laughs> what, what conversation? Are you sure? I mean, she's right. But it's just kind of you're just like, you need to slow your roll. <laughs> I don't know. But it's that's the all little they had signs. to go it's, on. That's all they had to go on. Signs. It was all about like picking up someone's yeah. glove or touching, like touching someone was huge. That's all you were well, offered. Even, it was so man. 
even in a context though where he's almost purposely trying to slight her and um, being cold and ceremonious when she really needs it when somebody who really cared about her would have stepped forward he stepped forward yeah. when like he, he knew she was tired he he got her right in the carriage when he she was being irritated with her cold shoulder he forgets that he's supposed to give her the cold shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Or, or just can't stand it for a moment. Yeah. Or he's trying to – he forgets that he's trying to just like show how – like whatever, I don't care about you. And then he's like, oh, but you know, the and these specific circumstances. I think it's when she says, shouldn't someone go get the doctor? Yeah. Um, and then it's – he's like, yes, yes, the doctor. Like he immediately – she makes a suggestion. or then And he even asks her opinion when they're traveling back. Like, do you think this is a good plan? I'll go in – like you go in first and tell the Musgroves what happened and then I'll come in. And she's just like blown away by the fact that he not only is considering asking her opinion, but clearly values it. Yes. A proof of friendship, which she, she values so much. And, um, you know, this time reading through it, I did feel a outsized emotional impact. Um, and I did think it was romantic every time he did one of those things, one of those little things. Yeah. Um, whereas before I was, feeling so resentful and you know even the things that she overhears him say um it's more the things that she overhears or hears through the grapevine him say that are hurtful and that try to show that he doesn't care about her it's his words that try to show that he doesn't care about her. when he says he's never seen anyone so altered you know he tells her sister that it makes its way back to Anne. or when he's talking to louisa and he's like Bird if mind. you want to What's that? When he talks about how, like, well, I think a woman should have a firm mind and know what she wants and not be yeah. persuadable. <laughs> well, yeah. And he's like, look at this glossy nut. <laughs> yeah, right? This is the best yeah. hazelnut. It survived on the branch. It didn't give up. And it's like, yeah. it's a nut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So those are my, those are the things I just had to get off my chest. And, and we can talk okay. a lot. If we want to, you know, move into plot a little bit. Well, let me just say. We can talk a little more. Okay. Let me just say that, like you said, this book is basically a romance. And I was here for it. I had never read it. I started it and couldn't put it down. I was into it. I loved it. At the very end, when he writes his letter professing his love, I gasped out loud on the treadmill, not because I was, you know, running or whatever, but because it was so beautiful. Um, I loved it. It had a maturity of writing, which we, I hadn't seen in her. And, you know, I love Austin. It it felt much more mature in terms of its writing and the plotting and everything. Um, I just, I loved it. When you say it felt more mature, how would you characterize? I think, Probably because it didn't focus on so much tongue-in-cheek. Not that there's anything I, I love her tongue-in-cheek and kind of satirical tone. Um, and like you pointed out, this didn't have that. This had more of a world weariness, um, someone who's lived sense, which is why I think packaging it with Northanger Abbey is so interesting. Because that's very much like a cheeky, like we're going to make fun yeah. of Gothic right. romances, right. like right. wink, wink. They're two very um, different books. If Northanger Abbey was a person, it would be that beautiful girl at the ball joking and laughing and flirting and dancing every dance and mingling and talking to everyone. And persuasion would be an older woman who has lived and experienced and still participates, 
and everyone loves, but there's the sadness to it. I will um, tell you too, um, the real reason, I think the deepest and the reason that I struggle with reading Persuasion, not only does it hurt me uh, physically to like read about that agony that uh, Anna Elliot goes through, but my relationship with Austin is almost like um, Austin has set out for me a practical morality. Mm-hmm. When we take a look at Mansfield Park and the way she lays out um, the ca- each of the characters deciding what they want, working backwards logically to tell themselves that they're being moral, that their decision isn't just arbitrarily what they want. Like Edmund just loves Mary because she's attractive and 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 charming. She, you know, so he's blind to those things and he he works backwards to justify himself. Oh, it's better to have a dissimilarity of temper. Um, Sir Thomas makes a decision that Mariah can marry Mr. Rushworth and it's going to be fine. And he reasons and logics himself into a decision which he knows to be wrong. Okay. There is, um, that's a practical morality for me. I, I, I'm not going to say Mansfield Park is like my Bible, but I, I will say it's like, it's a, it's, it was a seminal work in my understanding of what is moral. Mm-hmm. When we come to persuasion, there is such a fascinating part. Um, and I'm talking about the cruelty of Austin's narrative here. This one passage, which is sort of cringeworthy, which is where she sort of makes fun of um, uh, Mrs. Musgrove for being fat and being sad. And the actual writing is um, Mrs. Musgrove is on the couch and she's having to quote Austin, these large fat sighings over her, her dead son who we're told we're not Mm -hmm. because he was an unprofitable Dick Musgrove. Right. Right. Um, Let me provide a little context in case people haven't. So the Musgroves are neighbors of the Elliot's. They're kind of like, Anne stays with them when the family moves on the Bath. She stays with them for a while. Um, they had a son who was basically kind of worthless, I guess. He wasn't like particularly smart, particularly tried hard, kind of a jerk. He joined the Navy. He served under Captain Wentworth and then was killed. Um, and of course, as usually happens when we remember someone um, after they've passed, it's kind of through rose-colored glasses. Right. So she's sad. And Austin makes fun. She uses it as a bit of physical comedy. She's like, oh, this he couldn't help, you know, he he was good not to laugh at this ridiculous woman who was fat and sad. And then she goes, you know, a large character, a large figure has just as much right to sad feelings, to grief as a thin one. But there are unbecoming conjunctions, which taste will not tolerate, which reason will patronize in vain. And so what she's doing there, this is fascinating. She wants to make fun of this fat lady who's who's sad. She thinks that's funny. That was, you know, back in the day, they didn't have the sensitivity, right? So she works backwards and she's like, look, guys, I know I'm doing it and that's unfair, but come on, it's funny. And she works backwards to justify herself. And that's exactly what she skewered in Mansfield Park. And so it it, it, it reveals her humanity to me. Mm-hmm. It shows that everybody, even Jane Austen, can fall prey to this moral uh, pitfall. And um, even in the discussion of Dick M- Musgrove, when we're talking about dis- yeah. Dick Musgrove's death, she says they had the, the good fortune to lose him in his 20th mm-hmm. year. Yeah. Which is just downright cruel. I think that, that is a really interesting passage, and I would encourage people to read it because her writing there is very nimble. Because she's basically calling someone who had died 
um, worthless <laughs> and <laughs> which is kind of awful. Like you shouldn't talk crap about people who have died and this family lost their son. Like it is sad, but then also the family didn't really care <laughs> until they remember like Wentworth, Wentworth, every wait, wasn't that Dick's captain? And then all of a sudden it's, oh, my poor Dick. He was such a wonderful boy. And everyone's like, who is she talking about? Because no one really <laughs> ever cared. But it's just, it's I say nimble because the, the things she's talking about are kind of horrible and funny and rude, but also funny. <laughs> and it's like this weird moment. Um, <laughs> I mean, we all, I mean, it's sad. He died, but nobody really cared because he was kind of, (laughs) Kristen, do you have that line handy? Cause you know, you're like, I think of you as like a Jane Austen, you know, encyclopedia, um, where she's saying like, they would refer to him as the honorable Richard Musgrove when really he was just like worthless dick. (laughs) Thick headed, unprofitable Dick Musgrove. I don't have the line. Um, yeah. I don't have that exact line, but but yeah, I thought, that, uh, I thought that was just like a brilliant line. And this is again, him- yeah. And I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not saying that this narrator is not kind of mean, but again, it shows Austin's humanity because we all know people that are awful people. And <laughs> you heard they died, you'd be like, okay, whatever. Like that's sad, but I'm not here and say they were awesome. Um, I don't know. I just thought that part was fascinating. That passage was fascinating. You do make an excellent point that it is incredible writing that conveys all of this to you at the same time. And yeah. um, you know, I, I'm not a fan of fat shaming, obviously, because I have my <laughs> own issues with that in the past. And I actually didn't even catch that the first when I read it two times. And it's gross, but the whole scene is kind of gross. Like that's yeah. kind of a good word <laughs> to describe it. It's, it's unsettling because she's being gross because she's going on and on about her beloved son when really she didn't care. But then yeah. it's also kind of gross that this guy died and nobody cared. But yeah. apparently he was yeah. kind of worthless. Oh, and she also talks about oh, the mother is like, Mrs. Musgrove is talking to Ca- poor Captain Wentworth because he knows the guy. Was <laughs> he was a member of a yeah. crew. And if you're a worthless member of a crew on a Navy ship, you could get other people killed. Right. So when he died, Captain Wentworth was kind of like, well, at least I don't have to worry about that anymore. Um she says something like, oh, he learned so much under you. His letters improved so much. And the narrator makes a note like, yeah, the two letters he wrote that weren't asking for money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's also really funny. It's, it's razor sharp. It's, yeah. it's yeah. razor sharp wit for, for sure. It, it, it is her trademark um, uh, Great yeah. wit uh, there. So, so perhaps the narration in Persuasion is more biting and razor sharp than it is satirical. Doesn't have a twist of good humor like she's laughing right. at the world. Yeah, it's, it's like, more like, no, this stuff happens and yes. this is what you all think. Look, this is the world. This is the reality. He was worthless and he died. And we don't yeah. have to be sad, you know? And, and it's just, it's different. I'm not going to say it's right or wrong, it is still Austin, but it it is different. Um, and it, it to me, it's a little bit un- unsettling when I'm, you know, trying to think about Elizabeth Bennett and her worldview, and then shifting over to Anne Elliot, and you know, it's just different. But yeah. I would say that Anne Elliot's had a lot more sadness in her life than Elizabeth Bennett. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I just mean narrative, narratively and worldview wise, the worldview of the of the narrator too. Yeah. 
So do we want to go through plot or? Yeah, let's do some character introductions because the very first thing here's character roll call. And let's talk about Sir Walter. Let's talk about Sir Walter because he's the guy who comes up first. Okay. So the beginning of this book is about, and he's one of the, the guys, the characters who just has no redeeming characteristics. But the book starts with talking about Sir Walter. He's not like Hitler. He's just, how does she say at the end? He's like a silly, spendthrift, dumb baronet who didn't have the wisdom to keep him, his station that Providence had placed him in. He's just like the worst sort of entitled, privileged, landed gentry. He's conceited. He's silly. And he loves reading, um, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, The Baronetage, which is a a book. Mm-hmm. of people who you know book a book of uh ro- um nobility and he loves yeah. reading the passage about his own family and he's actually <laughs> written into the book about his daughter's marriage and the the day he specifically lost his wife and it talks about him leaving it open for his daughter elizabeth to see when he thinks she's sad you know cuz he just loves it so much and one of the most cutting lines in this entire book um well here i'll read the uh, the whole passage um vanity was the beginning and the end of sir walter elliot's character vanity of person and of situation he had been remarkably handsome in his youth and at 54 was still a very fine man Few women could think more of their personal appearance than he did, nor could the valet of any new-made lord be more delighted with the place he held in society. He considered the blessing of beauty as inferior only to the blessing of baronetcy, <laughs> and the Sir Walter Elliot who united these gifts was the constant object of his warmest respect and devotion. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, he thinks he's the shit. Um, So just for readers who may not be familiar. So Sir Walter Elliot is Anne's father. He was married, obviously, to Anne's mother who passed away. um, And he has three daughters. Um, Elizabeth is Mary the youngest. Elizabeth is the eldest. Anne is the middle. And I think Mary is the youngest. That's correct. Mary is the youngest. And they all live in on their estate. uh, Kellynch? Kellynch? Yes. Yeah, Kel- Kel- we could call it Kellynch Hall. Kellynch Hall. And he's the worst, basically. He just thinks that he's the best. Sir Walter's the best. That's, that's his motto. That's his house motto. <laughs> his marriage before Anne's mother died was sort of a reverse Mr. and Mrs. Bennett situation because Anne's mother, who was everything beautiful and elegant and graceful and smart, and you know, married Sir Walter because he was handsome in an indiscretion of youth. Yeah. <laughs> Another indiscreet youthful marriage that Lady Russell saw destroy somebody's life, by the way. And um, yes, and she she died. I think Anne was a, a young teenager, actually. When um, when she died and sort of left her daughters to this really silly, conceited father. Well, maybe she was 14. It was something four. It must have been 14. It, it was right be. before she went to school. Yeah. And she was um, sent to school. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, she, she, where am I going with this? Her daughter, her, his eldest daughter, Elizabeth, is basically. What a bitch. She's molded on the same, you know, mold. She's cut from this, you know, formed from the same mold. Let's keep our let's keep our metaphors straight here. Yeah, the um, hazelnut does not fall far from the tree. 
<laughs> exactly. And she's beautiful. She is now, what, uh, 29 or something. I know. God, what an old maid. But it's very yeah, interesting, old- actually, that Elizabeth is not married because I think she is kind of a bitch. And so that's why no one's proposed to her. Yeah, 13 revolving frosts had seen her open all the balls in the country, and she still had not gotten married. She wanted to marry um, the heir to Kellynch because Sir Walter has no son. So as you know, it was Elliot. Sir William, or or William, yeah, not Sir, William Elliot, sorry, um, who was a a nephew of Sir Walter's, but sort of didn't want anything to do with these horrible people and threw them off and did not – proposed to her yeah. and so she's still waiting for baronet blood to address her and she hasn't but gotten it yet look at it this way what's that how awful do you have to be to be beautiful and have a title and not have anyone propose to you i know yeah. okay so my mom just joined the call which is weird <laughs> <laughs> That link. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we have to not swear. Um, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but so Anne was the second daughter, and Anne is spoken of, and and we know she was young. She she accepted, and then you know sort of rejected Frederick Wentworth. Um, but she was a blooming young girl. She was beautiful. But it says her bloom has vanished early, since she was faded and thin. Uh, oh, God forbid, thin and haggard. Uh, you know, from a broken heart. Bottom line, Anne looks fine. It's just, yeah, she's normal. <laughs> That's the convention of the day. I mean, a brisk wind later makes her beautiful again. You know what I mean? <laughs> Brings the color, you, know? you know, but everybody's like walking and all of a sudden she's beautiful. She's like, and she's all that where they take the glasses off yeah. and it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, Mary, the youngest daughter, is not even as beautiful as, as Anne and, or, or Elizabeth. And uh, she's described as having a red nose one day by her father. I hope that may not happen every day, he says. I thought her character um, was hilarious, by the way. Oh, Mary no. is the One of the hard so things about persuasion is that it forces you to spend a lot of time in the company of Mary. Um, Mary Musgrove, Mary Elliot, as was. Oh, I thought she was hilarious, Kristen. She it's I mean, no, it's awful. it's funny, in the way she's skewered. It is funny, and the, all the contradictions, the stupid contradictions. One, uh, you know, one moment she's saying, "Well, I'm sure they won't come and ask me those jerks," and the next moment when they're they're arriving, she's like, "Oh, they always come and ask me." You know, like it's this weird. Um, if she's not the center of attention, she fancies herself ill. She's a hypochondriac, and um, and she's always demanding people pay attention to her, and always finding a reason to fancy herself ill-used. And mm-hmm. it's um, it's so grating to me that, that I hate spending time with the character, even even when it's funny. Um, she's worse I, to me than Mrs. Norris. And, I and think that's the, saying something. The, 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 wow. The narrator specifically, what is it? Is, does she say like she never learned how to handle solitude? Is that it? Or disappointment? I can't remember what the word is. Oh, I, I don't remember this. Basically, part. the narrator specifically says like, look, she cannot take, oh, she can't take anything negative happening. As soon as something yeah. that she views as negative happens, it's like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was left we alone. See that. I have a chill. Nobody wants me to walk. <laughs> Everybody wants me to walk. Why shouldn't they think I'm a strong walker? And it's just like, woman, <laughs> you need to stop. Um, so Anne is like the only sane member of this family. 
Yeah. And she's all alone in that. I'm all alone. So what happens is, what happens to the story is that um, Sir Walter has spent a lot of money. He is in debt and he needs to retrench. And so he is finally convinced, even though he's so vain about being the landed gentry, finally convinced by his lawyer. Um, the lawyer is great. I wish he'd been in the book more, actually, because I really enjoyed his character. He's a toadying, obsequious, but very smart man. Um, yeah. Uh, Sir Walter and Elizabeth go to Bath, where they don't have to live as expensively. They rent their their house, Kellynch Hall, in one of okay, the. Let, awesome- let me stop. Let me stop you because you're skipping over one of my favorite parts. Okay. Which- from the beginning. And it's when they figure out that, um, oops, we have no money. <laughs> and they try, is it um, Lady Russell tries to come up with a plan. They're like, okay, we need to figure out a budget. Yes. Thank you. Um, so they have to come up with a budget. So Lady Russell, well, first Anne comes up with a budget and it's very strict. It's like, this is what we need to do if we want to stay in Kellynch. And then Lady Russell's like, you're crazy. He's never going to agree to this. How about this? And then the narrator's kind of like, well, who cares? Because he's not going to do anything. He and Elizabeth are basically like, why should we stop living the way we're living? Just because we're poor. Just found that the best part. part. No, and I, I'm completely with you. And it always makes me laugh when – so Sir Walter goes to Elizabeth first, and he's like, can we not retrench? Does it occur to you that yeah. there is any one article that we can retrench? And she's like, well, okay, we can refrain from doing the dining room up new and we can cut out some of the lesser charities. Yeah. <laughs> like get by without with two horses and only yeah. one carriage. Yeah, forget it. It's too much but, to be born. Like we can't uh oh, but and then when they finally convince him to rent the house, like they'll move to Bath, which is cheaper. And they'll rent the house. And he goes, I can't advertise. So I'll just wait <laughs> spontaneously come by and offer <laughs> to rent my home. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I mean, what happens. That's exactly what happens. But, but you know John Shepard, the lawyer behind the scenes, is, is ginning up oh, somebody. Yeah. And in I'm one sure. of those Austin-esque co- uh, coincidences, <laughs> the people who do wind up letting the house are <laughs> uh, Wentworth's um, sister and her mm-hmm. husband. Yeah. And so all of a sudden Wentworth's um family is moving into the house that Anne, the rich once rich lady, is vacating. So this shows this incredible oh, flip. Can you I imagine know. how awkward. I know. And so Anne has to think the most agonizing part of the book to me, or one of the most agonizing in the passage I always skip, is when she's walking around in the house and thinking, soon he may be here. Mm-hmm. You know? And I and think Anne so um, when she when she finally hears that he will be coming to visit. And every time she can kind of dodge the bullet of seeing him again, her relief. Yes. yes. Like, oh, thank God, I don't have to see him again. Um, like the one right. of the, the, there was the Musgroves, I think their son, he like breaks his clavicle when he falls out of a tree or something. And right. she volunteers to stay at home and take care of him. And it's just like, well, thank God this kid broke his clavicle because now I don't yeah. have to. Oh. <laughs> Saved by the bell. Or in this case, a broken <laughs> clavicle. Well, and just to make it clear, rather than going to Bath with her father and sister, Anne has gone to stay with her sister Mary for a time to nurse Mary because Mary's like, oh, I'm so sick, yeah. right? And, and she, it's, she went, like, oh, Thursday I was fine. It's only been the last two days that I've become deathly ill. He, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like, then you ne- you never asked me about dinner at the pools. And Anne's like, well, I you were ill. I assumed you didn't go. And then she's like, there was nothing wrong with me until yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> like, the story keeps changing. This deadly sickness came on very quickly. 
Yeah, she's this ridiculous hypochondriac. And um, when Anne moves in with uh, Mary and Mary's husband, Charles Musgrove. Now, these people are interesting. Charles Musgrove is going to inherit another piece of landed property that is right next to Kellynch. And one time he proposed. Anne said no. um, because That's right. I forgot about that. Because she's waiting, among other things, she's waiting for Frederick Wentworth to come back. Well, she doesn't love him. He's not um, as cultivated. His mind is not as cultivated. And um, it, it would just, um, yeah. And when Wentworth actually hears about this, he's like, oh. Yeah. It's just refused. Now, I need to go back and reread because I read the book twice recently in preparation for this. I never caught the part where she thought he would come back. To me, I always interpreted as she said, no, I won't marry you. And he was like, okay, that's it then. You just dumped me. Thanks. And left. And there was no understanding or thought that he would come back. I don't remember. No, I think it was just sort of a hope. I mean, because she left the door open and she said, you could come back. And so she, I think it was just sort of a hope. She had no assurance that he would come back. And it even says at the end of the book, when he, after two years after he joined the Navy, when he got rich, he almost thought about writing to her. And that was yeah. sort of her expectation. And she also thinks if I was in his place and two years after I had made my money, I can't imagine anything would have stopped me from going back to the person I loved so much and trying again. I can't imagine anything would have stopped well, me. I mean, and like you said, a lot of that is going to be his male pride. Like, cause to him, she did dump him and break his heart. Yeah. Uh, as it says in Pride and Prejudice, is anything more odious to a man than to make, to propose to a woman who has rejected his first offer? Um, you know, worrying about whether Darcy would well, propose to her he again. Know that that's, that's the style of fashionable young women. she was just trying to be fashionable he just had to hang in there for seven she was testing him see no i'm just kidding obviously at this Um, point frederick wentworth comes to visit his sister tells himself he doesn't care about Anne elliott but for some reason decides to go to her in-laws house to party (laughs) all the time he's always over there um, he he finally gets into company with her just to ignore her and be ceremonious and polite and cold. Um, the narrator tells us really in his head that uh, he doesn't care about Anne. Well, if you had any feeling at all, why would you go and parade yourself in front of a woman you used to love? You're doing it on purpose. There's no reason you have to hang out at that place. It even says that he's putting off going to visit his other brother to to do this and to, to party with uh, um, uh, Henrietta and Louisa. Right? The the young, beautiful Musgrove girls. Now we've reached the portion of the podcast, which I would like to call In Defense of Captain Wentworth. <laughs> now, here is my personal, subjective, and yet clearly correct point of view. Um, I believe the narrator also makes clear that in the absence of the Elliots, the Musgroves are kind of like the head of the neighborhood. Yes. So... Of course, he's going to go over there because where else is he going to go? Um, and he goes over there because his brother and his sister go over there. And so he goes with them. So that's point number one. Um, I don't think that like it's I, I, I'm sure part of it is definitely like, look at me and you could have had this. Hey, like, you know, <laughs> um, but it's also like the two families are just going to spend time together because they're neighbors. And where else are they going to go? There's nothing else to do. Right. They're in the country. Okay. My second point is that there's Louisa and Henrietta, like you said, which are the Musgroves, two 
beautiful, wonderful, talented. Um, they would fit right into the Pride and Prejudice discussion between Lizzie and Miss um, Bingley about a truly accomplished young lady. Like they can do all that stuff, right? right? And they both have crushes on him. So it's very flattering to go over there and hang out with them, right? And also, hey, Anne, look, aren't you jealous? And yeah, I mean, is that kind of a dick move? Yes. But it's also something that we would do. It's like when you go to your high school reunion. Okay, look at it this way. You go back to your high school reunion. You are now hot. You are now rich. You are super successful. Everybody wants to be with you. Hey, look, there's that guy who I asked to prom and humiliated me in front of everyone. Check this out. You could have had this. Hey, you know, like I feel like that's a natural human instinct. Is it the best part of us? No. But to me, it's it felt like a natural thing that he would do. And we love Anne. And so we don't like him for doing that, but I didn't really, I didn't hate him for doing it because again, it felt to him, she broke his heart. So, and then also at the end, I, I feel like he owns up to it and apologizes for it and was ready to accept the consequences of acting like that, which would have been possibly having to marry Louisa, which we'll get into later. And he was willing to do that. And he basically says, I realized too late the extent of my behavior, but if she had wanted to marry me because I had flirted with her that way, I, I would have done it. And to me, it shows underneath there, there was an honorable man. Well, not only that, but when Anne sees what he's doing, she also sees that he's allowing the attentions of both Henrietta and Louisa. And she thinks to herself, I don't want him to lose his credit and integrity. He has no idea. You know, he needs to watch out what he's doing here because what he's doing is wrong. And she even thinks that to herself, too. So it's not only romancing Louisa. It's being the taking pride and being the big man on campus, you know, like or whatever. Everybody wants me. Um, and, and, uh, that sort of lavish attention, um, that is lavished onto him is, yeah. uh, is really over the top, but um, what a remarkable woman she is, What's what a that? remarkable woman Anne is to see him yes. acting like that and to actually not, it hurts and it like stabs her when she sees it, but she doesn't hate him for it. She still loves him. And she thinks he better be careful. I'm worried that he could end up doing his future harm by acting like this. She's not like, well, I hope he gets what he deserves or I can't believe he's doing that. What a jerk. She doesn't respond that way. And I'm not sure how many people out of a million would have that response. He doesn't deserve her, but then he knows that (laughs) at the end, he knows that. Um, I mean, I don't, I can't, I, I don't know if I can argue against, that point i don't know if he deserves her or not but she loves him and she wants to be with him yes and, and we're so along for that ride as our heroine because they, we love end up together and they end up happy yeah, yeah that's the thing like it's not like he's a, a um, wickham type character but she still wants him and so oh god and no you're too good for him i feel like he learns his the book is as much about him realizing the error of his behavior Maybe the book is actually right. about Wentworth endeavoring and learning to deserve Anne. Right. Well, and coming to, he he had a, a, a road to Damascus style moment when, okay, but here's the other messed up thing. When he sees Mr. Elliot, you know, at line, we didn't know who he was, was yet, but when he sees another man look at Anne very earnestly, 
like, oh, what a beautiful woman. Yeah. That's what rouses him to be like, oh, maybe I love Anne too. Okay, point number one, that's BS. Secondly, he's also all ginned up when he thinks that Mr. Elliot it might get engaged to Anne and all jealous. Like, I, you know, it's oh, he's over the top jealous, right? Because all of a sudden he thinks he deserves Anne the second he wants her again. Oh, but Kristen, that's you the know? way people are. There's never well, a way, there's never a better way to make someone interested in you than to make them think that someone else is interested in you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, come on. That's the way people are. It's like when you have a toddler with a toy, like they couldn't be bothered to play with it, but as soon as their younger brother picks it up, oh no, that's the toy I want. I yeah. mean, that's how we are. Yeah. When she's there and no one is interested in her, oh, I didn't really want her anyway, whatever. I'm over that. But wait this other guy who's rich and her cousin and would be Sir Elliot when he inherits might marry her. Oh my God, I'm such an idiot. What am I doing? Like yeah. Anne is awesome, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, let, and, and I mean, yes, these are all reasons why Captain Wentworth is flawed as a character, but they're also reasons that make him a well-rounded and well-thought out character. That's Actually, they passed me a note earlier um, <laughs> where he said, one of the things he's noticed about Austin is that her male characters are often not as well developed as her female characters, which I think makes sense. Yeah. From story and like experience perspective. But he found that Captain Wentworth, like, okay, he listened to some of the audiobook with me. He hasn't read the whole book. But he says that he got the impression that Captain Wentworth was a more developed and more well rounded male character. And I think that's an excellent point. Let me. I think it's a it's a point too. I I see that. It's and a point. Before we go on, <laughs> it's a point. <laughs> we um. It's an opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's a point. It's a point. Um, <laughs> before we move on, uh, before we get too far on, I I'm going to read what Frederick Wentworth thinks when he comes back into Anne's orbit because this is going to be important later um, when Louisa Musgrove takes her tumble. So he had not forgiven Anne Elliot. She had used him ill, deserted and disappointed him. And worse, she had shown a feebleness of character in doing so, which his own decided, confident temper could not endure. She had given him up to oblige others. It had been the effect of over-persuasion. It had been weakness and timidity. He had been most warmly attached to her and had never seen a woman since whom he thought her equal. But except for some natural sensation of curiosity, he had no desire of meeting her again. Her power with him was gone forever. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's the, it's this idea of she was persuaded to give me up. Therefore, I can't endure that kind of. It's this one character flaw that has driven him away, you know, forever. And he can't stop dwelling on. He can't stop thinking about it, even though it's a woman's, you know, duty to to listen to her parents. Whatever, whatever. Um, and that's the only reason I made sure to read that is because when we get to what happens in Lyme, that's going to be important. But is there anything we need to talk about other than, oh, so we should just quickly go over again the little things that happen before they go to Lyme. So just to um, to recap, so Anne's, and her, Anne's father and her eldest sister, Elizabeth, have moved to Bath. Anne has stayed behind. She's staying with the Musgroves, and then she was going to, ha- with Mary, or I'm sorry, she's staying with her sister, Mary. And then she was going to hang out with Lady Russell for a while before going on to Bath. And they all decide to take uh, basically a weekend trip to Lyme. But before that, there have been a little clues of Wentworth loving Anne. And it's what we talked about before, Uh, where the tiniest 
these are her nephews, I guess. She's at Mary's house at this point. Okay. Yes. So um, I actually have the passage. So, um, you know, the little boy, a little boy is coming in. So what she's doing, what Anne is doing is um, making the child who fell from the tree comfortable. So she's sort of like leaning over him. He's on the Wentworth is there. Like, oh, my poor clavicle. (laughs) And yeah, yeah. And Wentworth is there. And one other man is there who's not important. But anyway, here's here's the passage. (laughs) Another minute brought another addition. The younger boy, a remarkable, stout, forward child of two, two years old, having got the door opened for him by someone without, made his determined appearance among them and went straight to the sofa to see what was going on and put in his claim to anything good that might be giving away. There being nothing to eat, he could only have some play. And as his aunt would not let him tease his sick brother, he began to fasten himself upon her as she knelt, and in such a way that, busy as she was about little Charles, she could not shake him off. She spoke to him, ordered, entreated, and insisted in vain. Once did she contrive to push him away, but the boy had the greater pleasure in getting upon her back again directly. Walter, she said, get down this moment. You are extremely troublesome. I am very angry with you. But not a bit did Walter stir. In another moment, however, she found herself in the state of being released from him. Someone was taking him from her. Though he had bent down her head so much that his little sturdy hands were unfastened from around her neck, and he was resolutely borne away before she knew that Captain Wentworth had done it. Her sensations on the discovery made her perfectly speechless. She could not even thank him. She could only hang over little Charles with most disordered feelings. His kindness in stepping forward to her relief, and the manner, the silence in which it had passed, the little particulars of the circumstance, with the conviction soon forced on her by the noise he was studiously making with the child, that he meant to avoid hearing her thanks, and rather sought to testify that her conversation was the last of his wants, produced such a confusion um, of varying but very painful agitation as she could not recover from, till enabled by the entrance of Mary. So, um... It's almost like he touched her by extension. Yeah. So basically, in a way. she's attacked by this chubby toddler, and he's the only one who can save her. But it sounds pretty violent. Like the kid's hands were around her neck, and I guess he was, <laughs> yeah. he was hanging off her yeah. and like keeping her so she couldn't get up. And you know what? Those sometimes you just got to slap those kids. You know what I'm saying? I'm very cross with you. You're very troublesome. Like that is not going to do it, Anne. Oh, the circumstance, too, of him not looking at her, him not talking to her, it, it's – although it yeah, seems – impl- grabs the kid and walks off. Although it seems impolite to me that it, at first, then you realize that it, it – he felt it, too. He felt almost like t- he was touching Anne and he was overcome. He wouldn't let it be a normal uh, thing of like, oh, thank you. Oh, yeah, no problem. It, it was emotional for him too. And I think that's what his silence meant. And I do find that very romantic. I mean, maybe the toe um, of his boot brushed the heel of her slipper. <laughs> and that's um, like, they could get engaged just from that back then. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm, um, I had turned away my, my head to look at my next notes. So oh. I didn't hear what you oh, said. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I have all of these passages that I've copied and pasted into a single Word document. So as these questions come up, I can read the passages. I put, I put hours of, of, of preparation into these things. And it, sometimes I feel like they're so scattered that you can't tell. But no, I, 
I mean, I, I've said it before that Kristen does a lot, <laughs> um, a lot, all of the uh, legwork for these kind of things. And I just show up to kind of shoot things off her. But I think that your organization and time spent absolutely shows. Oh, I hope so. Let's repeat your joke again. Cause I was, uh, I, was oh, I don't paying. remember. It was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I think, okay, let me see. Let me recreate the moment. The toe of his boot touched the heel of her slipper. And that could have been enough to get you engaged back then. <laughs> Okay, that was funny. Thank you. You're so Um, sweet. Everyone, do you see why I adore her? She's so great. (laughs) I'm going to talk about one uh, one or two other things that happen, and then we're going to move into the fateful trip to Lyme. But before we do... Yeah, the trip. Get it? The trip? Ah! Um, Okay, yeah. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) So they go on this walk and it's autumn. And this is when Anne is thinking about, oh, the beautiful autumn. And then for a long story short, she's sitting somewhere. The other two are walking around. Louisa and Captain Wentworth are walking behind uh, a hedge. She's sitting next to a hedge. There's the hedge and then there's them. So she's eavesdropping on them, Wentworth and Louisa, even though she doesn't mean to, right? Because they just walked by her. Anyway, I have a note in this document that just says, uh, <laughs> goddamn glossy nut infamous glossy hazelnut the world's <laughs> nut she overhears uh wentworth um speaking his um resentment of people who can be swayed easily even though he doesn't right. put it in terms of Anne. that's clearly what oh yeah and so he, uh, here is what he says you know that she's listening i felt like he knew she was listening because she's just like on the other side of this hedge yeah maybe it is the worst evil of too yielding and indecisive a character that no influence over it can be depended on. You are never sure of a good impression being durable. Everybody may sway it. Let those who would be happy be firm. Here is a nut, said he, catching one down from an upper bough, oh, to exemplify a beautiful glossy nut, which, blessed with original strength, has outlived all the storms of autumn. Not a puncture, not a weak spot anywhere. This nut, he continued with playful solemnity, while so many of its brethren have fallen and been trodden underfoot, is still in possession of all the happiness that a hazelnut can be supposed capable of. <laughs> then returning to his former earnest tone, my first wish for all who I'm, whom I am interested in is that they should be firm. If Louisa Musgrove would be beautiful and happy in her November of life, she will cherish all her present powers of mind. And that is so cutting <laughs> yeah it's yeah. also i just picture louisa during this monologue where she's just like uh, okay because <laughs> she's, she's what like 20 21 she's young yeah she's young and he's giving this speech about this nut and she's just like uh yeah that's a great nut <laughs> <laughs> well and and supposes her to be very moved because wentworth had spoken about Louisa very warmly. You know, if you would be happy and beautiful in your November of life, kind of shows that he's interested in her November of life. It sort of is like a, a very intimate thing to yeah. say. And Louisa is being romanced by him. So that's hard for Anne. And then they're on their way home. They all walk back from where they went. And Anne was tired. But um, she's hanging on the arm of Charles, her brother-in-law. And Mary, the wife of Charles, is on his other arm. But Charles is pissed off at Mary 
So he keeps dropping both of their arms to go I'm look at a gopher or state of him. Yeah. To cut down nettles with his walking stick. So Anne is not being supported by him very well. And Wentworth can see this. And so when his sister and um, his sister's husband, the Admiral, they're such a cute, they're so cute. They're such a cute couple, by the way. But the the Admiral and Mrs. Croft, the people who rented Kellynch Hall, are driving by in a carriage. And so Wentworth, sort of, they sort of stop. And Wentworth sort of hails them and, and goes to speak to them for a second. And when he comes back, he has made sure that they will take Anne home with them because he knows she is tired. Mm-hmm. So he takes her hand and hands her into the carriage. Mm. And it says, it's like that yes. Scene in, Pride and in the, in the mini series when he takes her hand and helps her into the carriage. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It, it, it is romantic because it's him giving her something to show he cares. He, he, and there's a physical touch involved. Um, the passage is, yes, he had done it. She was in the carriage and felt that he had placed her there that his will and his hands had done it, that she owed it to his perception of her fatigue and his resolution to give her rest. She was very much affected by the view of his disposition toward her, which all these things made apparent. So Anne Anne thinks to herself, she understood him. He could not forgive her, but he could not be unfeeling. Though condemning her for the past and considering it with high and unjust resentment, Though perfectly careless of her, and though becoming attached to another, still he could not see her suffer without the desire of giving her relief. It was a remainder of former sentiment. It was an impulse of pure, though unacknowledged friendship. It was a proof of his own warm and amiable heart, which she could not contemplate without emotions so compounded of pleasure and pain that she knew not which prevailed. And that is honestly very human, very relatable, very romantic uh, even though, you know, she's in a hard position. I, I do get it. I get it, guys. It's That's romantic. Yeah. Kristen, I'm just going to have you just read Austin to me now. <laughs> I love listening to you read the um... – well, thank you. And one of the things I kind of regret about those Mansfield Park episodes is that I did cut that lady in reading when um, I, I could have kept myself reading and it probably still would have been good. And I could put the emphasis on the places where I think the emphasis should be placed. Um, you mean the emphasis on the correct syllable? Syllable. Yeah. And, you know, when I read my my favorite part or when I talked about my favorite part of Mansfield Park or whatever, when I listened to that episode afterwards, I'm like, I don't really like how she read it. She didn't, she didn't, you know, so I should have kept myself my own writing. Anyway. Well, I- I'm sorry I've sort of talked over you for a good part of this. Is, has, have there been points that you've been waiting to make and you've been like, Kristen, shut up? No, I <laughs> I like listening to your points. I mean, I feel like I have waited for you to finish making your point and then I've responded when I... <laughs> <laughs> good, um, good. I There's been like a dialogue. Been, yeah, I don't feel like you've been talking over me at all. We will talk. I think, so listeners, we sort of agreed before we started that. Um, I know it's been like an hour and a half. We're not very far f- through the story. We're only talking about volume one because well, we know we're in volume one. I mean, let's be honest. Volume one is basically like, these are the characters. This is, we have to place all the actors, right? We move them around Some... a lot to position them in such a way that for part two, all the interesting stuff can happen. Well, you look at your Kindle. Cause I'm going to talk about the next thing. The big finale, too Kristen, too precipitous, and uh, too pre- too precipitate. Um, the big finale of Volume One 
is a very eventful thing where all of the gang and uh, the Musgroves and Henrietta and Louisa and Captain Wentworth, they all decide to go on a day trip to Lyme, which is a, a place on the sea. It's a beautiful place. They're just sightseeing. And they go out there. And there's a really funny passage. Oh, well, so Anne, um, they go out there and Wentworth introduces them to his friends, the Harvilles and Captain Bennick. And they're such nice people. And one of the most agonizing things for me about this part is she thinks these people could have been my friends. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another thing that slays me about this. But when we talk about humor in this book, there's a very funny passage where Captain Bennick um, has just, well, this is not funny, but he has, he has just lost his fiance. His fiance has died unexpectedly. And oh, so that's he's hilarious. very, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, but this, but there's this very, so he's very into poetry. And so is Anne. They're both sensitive souls, right? But it's like really sad poetry, right? Isn't yeah. Like, or like Lord Byron, who's like crazy and all of these like sad poets. Yeah. 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 And um, so they talk and uh, he sa- it says, for those shy, he did not seem reserved. It had rather the appearance of feelings glad to burst their usual restraints. And having talked of poetry, the richness of the present age, and gone through a brief comparison of opinion as to the first-rate poets, trying to ascertain whether Marmion or the Lady of the Lake were to be preferred, mm. and how ranked the Gior and the Bride of Abydos, and moreover, how the Gior was to be pronounced... <laughs> he showed he showed himself I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right by the way either. He showed himself so intimately acquainted with all the tenderest songs of the one poet and all the impassioned descriptions of hopeless agony of the other. He repeated with such tremulous feeling the various line which imagined a broken heart or a mind destroyed by wretchedness. Um and that's to me funny. Um <laughs> And, and Anne goes on. My wretchedness. It's hilarious. And well, the G-A-R and how it's pronounced, okay? And yeah. then Anne goes, and Anne is like, look, okay, you shouldn't be reading poetry right now. And she mentioned, yeah. um, she mentioned such work of our best moralists, such collections of the finest letters, such memoirs of characters of worth and suffering as occurred to her at the moment as calculate to rouse and fortify the mind by the highest precepts and the strongest examples of moral and religious, religious endurances. <laughs> and then she realized um, when the evening was over, Anne could not but be amused at the idea of her coming to Lyme to preach patience and resignation to a young man <laughs> whom she had never seen before, nor could she help fearing on more serious reflection that like many other great moralists and preachers, she had been eloquent on a point in which her own conduct would ill bear examination. <laughs> mm. So I just picture him like reading these sad, sad, like, oh my God. And she comes up to him and just kind of gently takes the book and is like, yeah, don't, don't read that. Don't, let's not <laughs> yeah, read that. For you. <laughs> and then putting another book in his hands, like, why don't you read this? Fordyce's sermons. <laughs> yeah, why don't you read this? Instead, okay. I almost thought there might be like a little something to make um, Wentworth jealous about Benwick because he and Anne would just sit and talk for hours about poet about poetry and books and things like that. And someone's actually taking an interest in her and talking to her, which is kind of a novelty among all these people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
I thought, and I thought he was an interesting, I really liked him as a character. He seemed like a genuinely kind of nice guy. He, I mean, his circumstances are certainly very tragic. Yes. And, you know, we all love a uh, shy, sensitive type. It's um, true. His hair is probably all disheveled. And he probably has <laughs> spectacles that are always a little crooked. I think, I could be wrong, but I think it's pronounced Benick. Like you don't pronounce the Oh, yeah, w. they don't pronounce the Ws. Yeah, yeah that's a thing. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, they're in Lyme. And this is also where a, a man looks at Anne, who's been beautified by, by the wind. And, and Wentworth sees this. But the next thing is the major event that that rounds us out. Yes, and yes. This. Oh, my God. This it's is actually a fairly dramatic thing to happen. Oh, it is. It is. Um, it's, it's very dramatic. So they're all on the cob, which is sort of like a high walk. Um, so you can walk up to the water on it. And it's very windy because they're next to the ocean. So there was too much wind to make the high part of the new cob pleasant for the ladies. And they agreed to get down the steps to the lower. And all were contented to pass quietly and carefully down the steep flight, excepting Louisa. She must be jumped down them by Captain Wentworth. In all their walks, he had to jump her down from the stiles. The sensation was delightful to her. The hardness of the pavement for her pavement for her feet made him less willing upon the present occasion. He did it, however. She was safely down, and instantly, to show her enjoyment, ran up the steps to be jumped down again. He advised her against it, thought the jar too great. But no, he reasoned and talked in vain. She smiled and said, I am determined I will. He put out his hands. She was too precipitate by half a second. She fell on the pavement of the lower cob and was taken up lifeless. There was no wound, <laughs> no blood, no visible fruit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Everybody's freaking out. Crack. Like, oh my God, it's so <laughs> But I can't help but just be like, what a dumbass. Well, she couldn't be persuaded. Uh, uh, uh. This oh, my God. Thing. Doesn't it, it, oh, my God. I'm sorry. Did, did you finish reading it? Because I have to make a point here. Uh, yes. You, did you finish I, reading it? Okay. Yeah. So. Anne even thinks later, well, maybe Captain Wentworth will change his mind about thinking that an unpersuadable, like, mind yeah. is a good mindset. Like, hey, look what happens. You could bust your head on the pavement. Yeah, she <laughs> absolutely thinks that. And she's like, come on. Yeah, exactly. She's like, almost a very school marmish. Like, I guess you've learned your lesson. But um, the other thing about this, though, is is um, a genius of literature in that this is a metaphor for Anne's own uh, experience with Wentworth, where he was asking mm-hmm. her to jump into his mm-hmm. arms, and, and she didn't have any guarantee that he could catch her. He was like, come on, yeah. Anne, I love you, jump to me. And she could have jumped, he could have caught her, or he could have not made Dashed his fortune, missed, and she would have been totally screwed. You know, so uh, this is to me, this is just an exact metaphor of what he was asking her to do. I do feel really bad for him, though, because he even was like, no, no, Louisa, don't. It's fine. Don't do it. And she's like, no, I'm going to do it. And he's like, oh, crap. And he misses her and she hits her head and she's in like basically a coma for a week. And spoiler alert, she ends up fine. But it's really scary. They think she's dead. They think she's not breathing. She is breathing, but she doesn't wake up for like a week. It takes her months and months to recover. She's never the same. And it's just kind of like how horrifying. 
It is a horrifying, horrifying part. And, and, and when I read it, I was like, <gasps> and there's one um, on the back and it's not unpacked, which is why I can't read it to you. But on the back of one of my Penguin Classic editions, there was some story about some general who was being taken. He, Lyme is a real place. And he was being taken to Lyme and shown the cob and told about the history of the region. And he was like, don't talk to me of rocks. Show me the exact spot where Lisa Musgrove <laughs> fell. <laughs> Because it's so dramatic. Um, I remember when we were watching the BBC um, masterpiece adaptation many years ago. Oh, God. What was that? Like eight years ago? You still lived in Vernon. It was a long time ago. Um, And that scene, you just burst out laughing. Oh, it was done very The way they filmed it was not. She's just like, and like falls right (laughs) in his arms. Like it's not particularly, that scene is not particularly well shot, if I recall. It's kind of like, oops, like maybe he meant to not catch her. (laughs) I just remember you laughing and just going, she was too precipitous. (laughs) This is another story about that. Um, one time, Kevin, in our early years, I mean, when we we were younger, he very much was patient and listened to me talk about Austin. And Yeah, not and anymore. He, now he doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he's still very patient. In fact, today he asked, when we were having lunch at Jack in the Box, he asked, what are you going <laughs> to talk about today on the podcast? I had, <laughs> oh, my God, Kevin. You are the best. <laughs> we were at a different room. We were at Hard Times Cafe in Herndon, Virginia having a meal, very young newlyweds. And um, I got to, he, he started, we started talking about persuasion. I don't remember why, but he didn't realize I happened to be reading at the moment. He had no idea. And he, I, he was asking me about this scene and I told him, you know, the quote, she was too precipitate by half a moment. And first of all, he was impressed that I could quote from the thing. But then I was trying to tell him the story about that general. And I was like, what was it? What was it? Hold on. And I, I grabbed my copy, the Penguin Classic, out of my book so I could look at the back jacket. And Kevin was like, of course you have it. Of, of course you, you have it. You have it, right? This is, you have like the, the bag of holding where you can just like reach into it at any moment and pull out any, oh no, I care. Oh my God. You are just like, um, oh God, what is his name from Sense and Sensibility? It begins with the dub. What is his name? Why is my brain totally Willoughby. not working? Willoughby, who has like the Willoughby. sonnets. I carry the pocket version of the sonnets with yeah. me wherever I go. So they're not far from my heart. Like Kristen has her like essential Austin where she pulls out a tome and can like flip to the relevant portion. <laughs> but Kevin said, do you have an Austin utility belt? <laughs> oh my God. We got to have him back on the podcast. People have actually sent us messages Request where they're like, we need Kevin back on the podcast. He won't. He won't come back. He um. He told me he feels like he's like stepping on the things I'm trying to talk about. And um, no, people want to give the people what they want. People want. We'll have to do a special episode with Kevin where we can talk about something that he has some knowledge of. You know, uh, um, <laughs> our, our reader, our listener, rather Veronica, who wrote to us um, recently, said you really need to have a um an episode with Kevin and Bay. But um, interesting side note, a lot of people, when they write to us about Bay, they spell it B-A-E. Like, yes, they think that he's my Bay. Yeah. And that's really cute. He hates that, by the way. <laughs> um, his name is actually Bayard, 
B-A-Y-A-R-D. That is his name. It is the name his mother gave him. It's a family name. So when I call him Bay, it is not like he's my Bay. Like that's his nickname. His name is Bay. His name is Bayard. And he goes by Bay, B-A-Y. Um, and so it's I always am kind of when we're at a store or something, and I'll be like, hey Bay, like, blah, blah. And then sometimes people give me a look and I'm like, oh my God, no, I'm not. It's not like, hey boo. And then he calls me shoddy when we're out, and that's really awkward. <laughs> Um, we'll save it for the wheat chief. Save it for the wheat chief. Yes, the wheat, yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry. That was a good wheat chief yes, item. Perhaps I, a future I, episode guest starring Kevin and Bay. Although now there's this, there's this like mysteriousness to Bay where I don't know if people will ever, they can't hear his voice, but they can see his butt. <laughs> That's going to be <laughs> Hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So getting back to Louisa Mosgrove dashing her brains, it all ends well, but it's very frightening and very scary. And Anne is definitely a voice of reason when everyone's losing their shit. Yes, it's a crisis, and Anne is the one who keeps her head. And Wentworth Somebody sees go it. Get the doctor. Yeah, she's like, you yeah. go get the doctor. You know, Captain Bentwick. You go get the doctor. You know where he is. Boom. Wentworth is totally dependent on Anne. I mean, he realizes the strength of her character, and you know, strength of her character, not weakness, mm-hmm. you know, yep, in, in being able to, to do all this. And uh, there's even lines where, where Charles says, and, and what is to be done next? Yeah. What in heaven's name is to be done next? She should have looked at Wentworth Cap- and been like, who's persuadable now, bitch. <laughs> that would have been yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, probably no, not. It's but, it's you know. Too much character and compassion. Um, <laughs> and it says Captain, <laughs> Captain Wentworth's eyes were also turned towards her. And she says, had, had she not be better carried to the inn? Yes, I'm sure. Carry her gently to the inn. And they're all like, yes, yes, to the inn. Um, <laughs> what, what's funny? And like, carry her. I don't know. The whole situation is, it's certainly horrifying to read it, but there's also, and I don't think it's intentional, but as a modern reader, there's a certain amount of like ridiculousness to the situation, I guess. Well, Austin even punctures it a little bit because she says, by the time the report of the accident had spread among the workmen and boatmen about the cob. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> and many were, cl- Go ahead, yeah. many were collected near them to be useful if wanted, at any rate, to enjoy the sight of a dead young lady. Yeah, and now two, because two. <laughs> two dead young ladies. <laughs> For it proved twice as fine as the first report. Henrietta had fainted also. So they're <laughs> carrying these. It was like, I, dead, <laughs> dead young ladies. <laughs> I think that's more of like her just like poking fun at how stories travel and things like that. The actual yeah. incident, I don't think, is supposed to be played for comedy. No. But no. And it's for not. some reason, to for maybe it's just because the first thing I saw Persuasion was that adaptation. And so your reaction to it has now kind of colored my perception. Um, but it is kind of – well, it's also difficult as a modern reader because it's like – Everyone just kind of like stands around waving their hands like, oh, my God, what do we do? Um, and now it's just kind of like you call, you got to go get a doctor. You got to call the police. Like someone's got to get an ambulance, blah, blah, blah. But back then, you got to no like CPR. run and get the doctor. Like the doctor could be days away. Right. They don't know CPR. They don't right. even know how to check to see if she's breathing other than to like look at her really hard. <laughs> right. it's, it's even for the uncertainty, it's even more scary. It but is. then I picture and, Henrietta um, like, she's dead! Henrietta's like freaking <laughs> out. And, like, 
I don't know. It could have easily been that she had died. And I guess it's difficult without knowing how far she fell and stuff like that. It's supposed to be, I think, like five feet at least. Yeah. Like she fell a long way. Oh, yeah, she did. I mean, this is a yeah. serious head injury. I mean, it changes her yeah. entire personality. Yeah, she becomes much more calmer and not so. But they say, like, Louisa is the more lively, um, like, kind of, I guess that's the way of putting it. Between her and Henrietta, there's a discussion about how they're different because they're sisters. And they're both lovely and smart and nice and everything. But I think Louisa is always put as the more lively, like, outgoing one. Yeah. And yeah. um, and then after this, she's much more temperate. She's yes, she's very. She probably um, will have migraines for the rest of her life. Yeah, she she you loves. Can't take any Motrin. There's no Motrin. There's no in Motrin. Eighteen, whenever. Right. I'm the doctors saying. like the doctors like didn't know. They were like, I don't know. It might be fine. Might not. <laughs> oh no, the doctors like oh, she looks okay to me, and they're like, Are you serious? And he goes, Well, I don't know. <laughs> There's not really any way to know. I've seen better. I've seen worse. I think he says that. He's like, I've seen yeah. better, but I've also seen people with worse head injuries. Yes, he does. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> he basically uh, looks at her and is just like, "Yeah, we'll see what happens." <laughs> and they're all. <laughs> I mean, but they can't give her an MRI. Right. They, 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 like that the extreme um, disaster that it is. It's just because they have no context at all. And yeah. Um, yeah. And, and even as you, exactly as you said, um, he says, someone's like, Oh my God. And Wentworth is like, don't talk of it. Don't talk of it. Oh God, that I had not given way to her at the fatal moment. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Had I done as I ought, but so eager and resolute, dear sweet Louisa. Mm-hmm. Then it says, Anne wondered whether it had ever occurred to him now to question the justness of his own previous opinions as to universal felicity and advantage of firmness of character, and whether it might strike him that, like all other qualities of mind, it should have its proportions and limits. See, this is why Anne is great, and why Anne is kind of like Eleanor, where she kind of will have these little thoughts and observations where it's like, yeah, that you don't feel that way anymore. huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know? She has a running commentary in her head. That uh, yeah. I'd say she's like a little less sarcastic. Yeah. It. It's more just dry. like, yes, I think we can all agree now that perhaps being persuadable can be good. Right. So they basically have to go back and tell the Musgroves what's going on. And there's a lot of just kind of everyone's coming back and forth and sharing news and some people stay and some people go back. And Anne goes back with him in the carriage. At the last minute, it's decided. And and so she has to spend this whole carriage ride with him and so emotionally charged. And at the end... I'm sure he's beating himself up the whole time. Yeah. I mean, how could you not feel that was your fault? If she's like, catch me, catch me. And you're like, huh? And then boom. like (laughs) It's like just, it's like goofy, but it's like, it was. You expect the man to be able to, you know, I don't know. I basically see him as like, he looked away for a second. And then when yeah. you looked back, she was hurtling towards him. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was. He wasn't ready. If you're going to jump yeah. into someone's yeah. arms, you got to take a good look and see if they're going to catch you. Just like if you're going to marry to someone, you got to take a good look and see if they can support you. Oh, snap, Kristen! Mm. You know, it's like all of these things have their proportions, times, and and and. But you know what? At least Anne didn't like get her brains dashed out all over the pavement. Yeah, I know. Yes, that is the value. That, you know, we can only applaud. her heart, Kristen. Only her heart got broken. Yeah. <laughs> 
And uh, then at the end, this is the end of volume one. When they go back, they have this whole silent carriage ride. And at the end, he leans forward and he very earnestly says, I've been considering what we had best do and asks her opinion as to whether it's a good plan. And she, she, the remembrance of the appeal remained a pleasure to her as a proof of friendship and of deference for her judgment, a great pleasure. And when it became sort of a parting proof, its value did not lessen. So that, that this is the end of volume one. Anne's about to go on to bath, both. That, that for me particularly really struck me as kind of him, um, what we're talking about, you know, in a moment where he's not focused on trying to, when he's, when we're most truthful, when we're so overwhelmed and we don't have an artifice, yeah. he relies on her. He asks her like, is this a good plan? Is this what we should do? Like, what do you think? He, um, she is the one and he trusts her opinion and values her opinion. And for and me, this, when I was reading it, it's just like, wow, like that's actually, especially, I mean, not to whatever time period, modern reader, but I mean, she's a woman and he's like, what do you think? Like, is this a good plan? Yes. You know, like that's, it's even bigger. And your point it about it being mature is that this is a mature kind of love. This is a kind of love that is based on respect for character and the whole person. This isn't like young puppy love, like, oh, yeah. you're so handsome. Um, yeah. There's the maturity of their value and their respect for one another, which I, I, mm-hmm. I do think falls into your point about of this being a more mature style right. book. Okay, and she's so not like a Catherine we'll Moreland. We'll have to just wait until next time to find out if these two crazy kids yeah. can, <laughs> can, they, can they both recognize their love for one another after seven years and lots of heartbreak <laughs> and headbreak. I don't Can know. Make it work. I'm gonna get that happy ending. I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to wait. So let's um in the in the effort to keep these things under two hours. It's whatever people love. It's probably time. <laughs> when I you know, when I saw our first like podcast, it went over an hour and a half. I was like, people are gonna think this is so indulgent. <laughs> they don't have to listen. Yeah. Again, we're not this is not, you know, Clockwork Orange. We're not taping your eyelids open and making or your ears and making you listen to us. Yeah. People have long commutes. People have boring jobs. They need something to listen to. And we we're are here, here for to you. fill the void. Yeah. So that honestly, we edit out a lot of extraneous stuff. <laughs> a lot of stupid <laughs> digressions. It's not like um, Maggie. Did you undo? Did you unplug your headphones? <laughs> 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 Who's making that noise? And then there's stop moving that. I'm thing. Sure, there will be a lot of bass butt edited out of this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we'll call this okay. the end of uh, part one of persuasion, and we'll go ahead into um, any new business. Uh, you want to go to the wheat chief? Yes, we have to walk down the lane. Kristen, what's in it? The wheat chief. Well, the wheat chief um, is closed because it's freaking Sunday and everything's oh, right. closed. Oh it's no, Sabbath, uh, but not for me. I'm sorry. I forgot we weren't in Boise. Okay. So maybe it's open. All oh right. My God, so it's like legitimately closed on Sunday. Yeah, it's annoying. So we got a number of um, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, I support it. I support it. I'm like, no, but I'm Mormons got to eat. No, no, no. Mormons got to eat too. You know what I'm Is saying? Piggly Wiggly <laughs> open. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have the Piggly Wiggly. We do have do Albertsons, which is a. Do you have a Whole no, Foods? Wait, yes, we do have a Whole Foods, yes. Do you have a Trader Joe's? Yes. I'm good civilization. You're fine. Yeah, this is not Siberia. Yeah, you, you <laughs> make a good point. Um, at least not in uh, in chain store from that perspective. From, weather-wise, it might as well be. But 
Okay, so we got a really kind bit of fan mail from Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Uh, hi. Also Veronica. from Canada. Also from Canada, and um, she has written and said, thanks for being amazing and giving the world the podcast it needed. I studied oh, 18. Not the podcast it deserved. <laughs> <laughs> great power comes great responsibility. She says, I study 18th and early 19th century lit for my degree, and all my friends are beyond fed up with my years-long Austin ad- uh, obsession. So finding your podcast makes me feel very warm, fuzzy, and understood. You know what, Veronica? And- they need a middle finger. Yeah, they do. They absolutely do. And um, Tell them to suck it. You know what? You're tired of hearing about Grey's Anatomy. So they can listen to you talk about Austin. You don't care <laughs> what happened on The Apprentice or whatever the Canadian version of that show is. <laughs> it's the Canadian version of The Apprentice. Of the Canadian version of The Bachelor. Like, you don't care. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about things that matter, like 18th and 19th century literature. That's right. And she also has two delightful recommendations for those who are looking for more Austin content. There are two blogs Ooh, that she recommends. Oh. The first one is called masterpiece of ass.com. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. I am now pulling out my phone and I'm going to this website right now. It's got a lot of gifts. And I'm definitely going to have to. Um, I need to start keeping notes when we record these of all the things I want to post on the post uh, on the Facebook, Facebook page. In the, in the other one is a Tumblr. It is um, the other Austin.tumblr.com. So the other Austin, all one word or one string, .tumblr.com. Tumblr, of course, being T-U-M-B-L-R, no E. Oh, my God. I'm happy to report that Masterpiece of Ass is amazing. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's all like the first front page is all these pictures of Tom Hiddleston, and then it's Richard Armitage, and then it's Martin Freeman, and the down – oh, my God. I love it. Ooh, wait. There's Edmund from from Mansfield Park. What? Um, okay, sorry. You this know, is great. Um, yes, check it out. Veronica also made the point that you know we did say Austin didn't write per, you know proposal scenes because she didn't have that necessarily that life ex- experience. Experience it was one theory, it was one of many you know possible factors. And Veronica reminded, reminded me that actually Austin did get a proposal from uh, Harris Big Wither. Um, she she accepted, <laughs> and then the next day she rejected. He was not a particularly he was not a catch and she, she didn't love him yeah she what didn't love him with her who wants to be mrs big wither <laughs> hey you know if he comes with the property attached and you can get your if taxes on michaelmas yeah big payday on michaelmas you know that's what you want so <laughs> anyway so that's a good it's a it's a good point i don't think it was a romantic proposal but she certainly had that experience um yes very good point veronica thank you and so then the other thing um, I wanted to, um, we also had a lot of other interesting conversations, but, um, you know, um, I'm saving them for our Mansfield Park uh, Patricia Rosma adaptation discussion. We also got another uh, email from our other fan named Bethany. We are so Bethany with the Bethany demographic. Bethany D, Bethany D, who, um, you know, they both, they, they both have so many similarities to them. It's funny. But, do um, they know each other? Bethany's, do you they guys don't. know each other? You should be. <laughs> it's not a common name. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Bethany 
did an incredible amount of research, just like our other Bethany, Bethany D did an incredible amount of research on pregnancy because we mentioned the pregnancy corset. So then Bethany got interested and she learned all about the the craziness and the zaniness of being pregnant in the the Regency era. And um, there's so much to go into, but another, another time on another episode about Regency life, we'll definitely talk about it. So thank you, Bethany. Do we have proof? that Bethany C and Bethany D are not in fact the same person. Well, have they ever I, been in the room together at the same time. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're, G, they're avatars. They're uh, email avatars show different colored hair. Well, there you go. So that is, that is, <laughs> that is proof positive. You cannot believe- argue that different people. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Bethany's email, uh, Bethany D's email uh, says, Doing my part to represent the Bethany's. <laughs> we should not have, maybe we could have a special episode with both Bethany's. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. The, a black hole will be formed if the Bethany's meet each other. <laughs> we could go into a pocket universe. <laughs> yeah, don't cross. Don't cross the Bethany streams. Oh my um, god. Anyway, that's the wheat sheaf. That was good. Do we have any other um, old or new business to discuss? I don't think so. We didn't, I don't think any of us drank wine tonight. No, it's only like, what, three in the afternoon for me? It's Sunday. Four. Well, that's true. You can drink anytime you want. Okay. I, I think, have to say, you were very emotional about Captain Wentworth at the beginning. Man, it was very interesting. I get, man, I get so worked up about this book. I know I've I'm said so before. I'm so emotional, baby. <laughs> right? But that's good literature. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. It makes us feel very deeply. So next time on First Impressions, we will be discussing volume two of Persuasion. So we look forward to seeing you then. Well, yeah. See, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. You'll look forward to listening (laughs) to us then. Shut up. Whatever. (laughs) Signing off. Good night, America, and all the ships at sea. All right. bye, Bye, guys. Um, so people want to hear about Bay's butt? No. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Outtake. If could, look, if they could see, if they could see Bay's butt, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll post a picture on the Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> they can't see his face, but they can see his butt. They can't see his face, but they can see his butt. All right. That's a good outtake.